Welcome to Santa Barbara Talks with Josh Molina. And today is going to be a great conversation and a great day. I'm so honored to be here with Dr. Mario Garcia, who is a legend um, all over the state and, and country and academia. And we're, we have been blessed to have him at UCSB for, for decades, uh, teaching generations of students about history and Chicano history. And we're going to talk about a really special event coming up next week. And um, first, though, before we get there, I just want to welcome you, Mario, Dr. Garcia, to the show. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you, Josh. I want to just start off with, uh, we're going to be talking about the sixth annual Sal Castro Memorial Conference. And this year, you know, here it is, this year, there's a special event, which is a symposium on your work, Dr. Garcia, and everything that you have been acknowledged for everything you've contributed and people are going to be talking about you you've recently uh, retired although you're still teaching a little bit you know so we're going to talk about that let's start off with this conference and what what is it why is it important what can people expect what can you tell us about it well it it is the six actually biannual conference uh and uh, it's named after sal castro who was that courageous leader who in 1968 uh, inspired the students to walk out of their East LA schools, segregated schools, inferior schools, to try to demand changes. And so he's a legend. Sal Castro is a legend in Chicano history during the period of the Chicano movement of the 60s and 70s. So I, we, he died in 2013. And so we named it the conference after him, the conference that started a year earlier. So this is the sixth now, with one year be, uh, off because of uh, COVID. Um, and usually the conference is two days of different uh, scholars, historians primarily, uh, giving papers on the Chicano movement, although this year we expanded it to include civil rights struggles before the movement uh, and after the movement as well. Uh, but uh, the difference to this time around is because of my retirement, some of my colleagues wanted to uh, kind of celebrate my work and my legacy, so we reorganize the conference so that the first day will be the usual panels and people presenting papers. We have a special panel on recently published books on the Chicano movement, and then other panels that cover different areas of movement struggles or uh, other civil rights str struggles, as I said before, after the movement. But the second, and that's on February the 18th, which is Friday. The next day, Saturday, uh, on, on the 18th, will be the special symposium on my work and my legacy. So um, we'll have Chancellor Yang there introducing uh, or saying some welcoming remarks. We'll have Representative Salud Carbajal, who was a, is a former student of mine, also saying a few words. And then I'm going to give a presentation of why I write Chicano history. And uh, I basically say that, you know, it has been my passion for five decades or more. Uh, to rediscover, to excavate, to uh, and to write the history of Mexicans in the United States. And so that uh, my presentation will go over some of the, the, the ways that I've done it in the different periods. But I'll conclude by saying, you know, for me, it's a passion. I need to do it. It's not something that someone is asking me to do or I have to do it to get promotions. I do it because it's me. This is what, what, it, what I'm all about. And, uh, of doing my work and, and 
adding to our knowledge about the history of Mexican Americans and, and other Latinos in, in the United States. So uh, the special symposium will include also a special uh, film uh, that is being done through the auspices of the oral history program at UC Berkeley. Todd Holmes, the filmmaker, uh, did the special film and it'll include photographs of my, uh, of my career, of, of my life actually. And, uh, and then based on interview, the interviews that Todd did with me, I'll be the kind of a voiceover. I haven't seen the film yet, but uh, he does great work. So we're looking forward to it. And following that, uh, there'll be uh, several panels. One will be a panel on the work that I've done on leadership and civil rights. And uh, we'll have a couple of people uh, addressing that. Uh, we'll have a panel uh, on the work that I've done on Chicano Catholic history, which is something that I got into a bit later in my career, but uh, my work has helped to uh, discover that uh, connection between Catholicism and Chicanos in the United States. And then there'll be a panel on the work that I've done on oral history and testimonial. Uh, I've used oral history significantly throughout my career and including writing full oral history texts, for example, my book on Sal Castro that I mentioned after which the conference is named, I did his testimonial. We did about 50 hours of interviews over a period of some years. And then I wrote it in his, in his words, but I also did a lot of other research relating to his life, to the blowouts in 68. I interviewed some of the students who were involved in the school walkouts and I interspersed their voices and also newspaper coverage of the events and so forth. So I've done that kind of work and uh, a couple of the panelists will address. And the last panel will be uh, some of my former graduate students will uh, share their reflections on the work uh, that, that we did together by working with them and they're going through their graduate or PhD programs or with some cases they were my teaching assistants in our large introduction to Chicano Studies class. So the day will cover all of these kinds of activities that are related to my work. But I wanted, I told I, uh, my colleague, Professor Ralph Ambruster Sandoval, who organized this second day, that I didn't want to just be sitting there listening to all of this, like if I was listening to eulogies at my funeral. <laughs> and I said, no, let's make it interactive. So each of the panelists will also have some questions for me after they've made their presentations. For example, on the panel on leadership and civil rights, they'll, they'll ask me a, some questions about, well, whatever that, that relates to my work in that area. For example, again, my book on Sal Castro, my book on Bird Corona, my most recent book, which was on Father Luis Olivares and the Sanctuary Movement in Los Angeles. I'm sure they'll, they'll, they'll ask a question or two about that. So it'll make it interactive and a little bit uh, more, uh, uh, less formal, you know? I, and uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that, that interchange. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it sounds like there's so much and it's gonna be a really rich environment and panel discussions and speeches and just a really great opportunity for people to learn about you and Chicano history and looking at the the lineup is two days of really high level stuff with Chancellor Yang's going to be there and you know Ralph Armbruster Sandoval is going to be there you know talking and so um, I wanted to just sort of you know give you an opportunity to talk about that uh, let's let's dive in though on the crux of what you do 
I think we as a country are naive to our history to a large degree. Um, you know, obviously that's a generalization, but a lot of us don't really know uh, history like we should. Uh, we might uh, learn a little bit. We might have some knowledge and maybe it's recent history or it's very old history. And that's just true of, of, of every type, right? Uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk about why you write about Chicano history and why that's important and why it's important not just for Chicanos and Mexican-Americans and uh, members of the Latinx community to know, but it's really important for, for everyone who wants to know about history to know about. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah. You know, Sal Castro always said, and it was one of his mantra, Chicano history is American history. Chicanos, Latinos are American history. And that's very, very true. But too many people don't seem to make that connection. I tell my students, for example, that uh, in, in my estimation, there are certain particular reasons why we need to know Chicano Latino history. One, for example, is just the demographics. Uh, as you know, Latinos now represent a significant portion of the population of the United States. Some 20% of the U.S. population are Latinos, of which people of Mexican extraction are the majority at about 60%. But uh, that means about 60 million people uh, in the United States are Latinos. They're, Latinos now represent, and they've represented now for over 20 years, the largest racialized, I guess, ethnic population exceeding the African-American population about uh, some 20 years ago. So I tell my students, if for no other reason, just the demographics, we need to know what that population is all about. And, and, and I tell them, in 2050, it's estimated that uh, one out of three Americans will be Latinos. But then I say, guess what? The future's already here in California. Latinos represent 40% of the state population, the largest ethnic group in, in, uh, in, the, in California, exceeding white Americans, uh, African Americans, Asian Americans. The future's already here in California. We need to know uh, about the uh, background of, of Chicanos and Latinos. They're in our schools, uh, they're, they're, they're uh, in our politics, they're in our community, they're consumers. Um, if you're going to, whatever area you're going to go into in terms of your career, you're going to be dealing with Latinos in one form or another. If you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be dealing with them and so forth, if you're a lawyer. So we need to know just demographically what this population is all about, what its history is about. People think, for example, well, aren't they the last of the immigrants? Are you kidding me? That Latinos, first of all, were here already before uh United States came into California, came into Texas in the Southwest, which they took over from Mexico in the U.S.-Mexico War of the 1840s. They took that, conquered it. And so the initial generation of Chicanos are a colonized population, which tells you something, perhaps, of why they've been lagging historically, economically, educationally, and so forth. If you're a conquered people, you're looked upon as an inferior people already. So demographically, we need, we need to, to know they, they, they've had a long history. They're not the last of the immigrants. Mass immigration, for example, from Mexico began at the turn of the 20th century. And pretty much with the exception of the Great Depression has, has continued. Uh, and then secondly, I, I say uh, we need to know it for uh, academic reasons. And by that I mean is 
how can we really understand the full nature of American history, of American culture, if we're not uh, integrated, or we're not uh, bringing in all the groups that have contributed to the history of the United States, especially in this case, Chicanos and Latinos, that we're not really understanding the full nature of, of our history. Let's say, for example, we talk about, well, uh, how about the beginnings of American uh, literature, let's say. And, and so people will say, well, you know, there's those documents and diaries and journals that in, uh, English colonists and others in the 13 colonies wrote and so forth. Okay, that's, that's good enough. But what about even prior to the establishment of the 13 colonies, you have the Spanish entering into New Mexico, Texas, later California, and some of the, the people there, the missionaries, the, the military, they wrote documents, they wrote diaries, they wrote journals. Isn't that part of the origins of American literature as well? It's in Spanish, but but it's still part of uh, a literary tradition that ultimately becomes part of the United States. So we need to begin to rethink and revise what we mean by American history. You know, we usually think of American history east to west, right? The movement to the west. Mm -hmm. Oh, what, when you include Chicanos and Latinos, now you've got a south to north uh, projection. So we need to kind of rethink even that kind of idea that our history is east to west, it's south to north as well. And the last thing I tell my students is for uh, for for to, the issues of, of, of good citizenship. How can we be good citizens if we, again, don't know the full extent of our the history of this country, we don't know the history of a significant population that is only going to grow larger, how can we be good citizens? Let's take the issue of immigration. How can we deal with and discuss coherently, uh, historically, the issue of immigration coming from the South, from Mexico, from Central America, if we don't know what that, that, that history is all about? I mean, uh, they're coming because of conditions in their home countries, of, of course, poverty or other economic, political changes. But they're also coming because historically we've pulled them in. We've pulled them in. When that first big immigration, massive immigration began in the early 20th century, yes, they were leaving because of economic conditions in Mexico and the Mexican Revolution of 1910, which forced a lot of them out. My own family on my mother's side came out of the Mexican Revolution. But, well, but they were also being pulled in because the Southwest in the early 20th century is integrated into the new industrial economy of the United States, not because industries were being established, but because the Southwest becomes an area where they can find additional foodstuffs for the industrial armies of the, that are being assembled in the East and the West. And, it's, and then you also find finding industrial uh, uh, in, in the mining area, uh, ores, industrial ores that are needed like copper and silver and lead. And then, and then, and then the extension of the railroads, not so much building the railroads, but maintaining. Who was doing all that work? It was Mexican immigrant workers who were being pulled in and doing that. They, they built the economy of the Southwest in the early 20th century from Texas to California. And uh, at the same time, uh, they were treated, they were heavily exploited. They were hired in literally what were called Mexican jobs, mm. paid what were called Mexican wages. So, Mexican immigrants have had a long, long history and have contributed to the economy of this country. So when we hear, you know, that nativist or uh, person, racist, whatever, saying, well, no, these people are just coming to take things away from us. Mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, early on in my career, UCSB, I was asked to speak at a Kiwanis club in downtown uh, Santa Barbara about Mexican immigration. And I did, I gave them, you know, what I knew of the history. And in the Q&A, any questions? One gentleman finally raised his hand. He said, you know, I don't have anything against Mexican immigrants, except they come and impregnate our daughters. Oh, no. And I, how do I respond to that? I said, well, I said, I said something like, well, I guess you'd find unwanted pregnancies in, in all culture. But this is the extent of what this guy was focused on. Right. Not the fact that immigrants in Mexico had been coming in in huge numbers already in the early 20th century and building the economy. Even here at Santa Barbara, they've worked the, the agricultural areas here and so forth. They built the, the they constructed the streets, they constructed the homes and so forth and so on. So that's what I mean by being knowing the history of Chicanos Latinos in order to be a good citizen. Stop dealing with stereotypes, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, you go back, well, you know, we all know the, the Trump's famous uh, remark about immigrants, you know, they're all come, they're criminals, they're rapists. Give me a break, you know. Uh, so people, in order to be good citizens, including Chicanos, we need to know the history of this very, very important population. <laughs> Oh yeah, that, that's great. It's it's so uh, so fortunate to get a little bit of a, a lecture here uh, and <laughs> the audience, and you know, to hear that history for free. Um, I wonder. I want to talk to you about the late '60s and things like the Chicano Moratorium and the Vietnam War and the term Chicano, uh, because there are people who, you know, we're in this era now where Latinx is a term preferred term by by many it's it's not preferred by others it is a controversial term but um, if somebody wants to be referred to as latinx uh, certainly in journalism ap style then you refer to them as that you know you refer to them how they want to be referred to and uh, if they want to be called chicano then you refer to them as that you know um, but you have to ask them you have to defer and so we have all these terms and the hispanic population the latino population is diverse right we're, we're different if we're from mexico if our parents are from mexico or from, then from puerto rico or you know any of the hispanic latin american countries we're all we're all different mm -hmm. and so i wonder if one if you could just define the term chicano right and what that is for people who may think they can use it with any mexican american mm -hmm. or anyone what does that term mean and then can well, you talk about the civil rights movement and the chicano moratorium and the Vietnam War and, and and how how when we talk about our history, well, who was dying in the Vietnam War, you know, in numbers that were not necessarily acknowledged. Can you talk about that period? Because yeah, when you think well, of the civil rights movement, there's certain images that come to mind, and I'm not sure that that um, Latinos and Hispanics do in most people's minds. There's a lot there, <laughs> Josh. Uh, get, get me all on track, back on track if I, if I deviate. But uh, let's go to the term Chicano. The term Chicano, well, from what we know, is first visible or first heard back in the 1920s. The Mexican anthropologists uh, uh, did some work on Mexican immigration, uh, discovered in his interviews. Uh, Manuel Gamio, uh, that the term Chicano was used and it was linked to Mexican immigrant workers. And some people think that it's, it's, it's a variation of Mexicano, but perhaps 
pronounced with a kind of indigenous uh, pronunciation, so that it comes out Chicano, Chicano. Mm -hmm. So the term Chicano, from what we know, has a long history. We know that later in the 1940s, around World War II, the term Chicano, which is applicable to people of Mexican background, not to Puerto Ricans or Cuban Americans, it's very specific to people of Mexican descent, not that all of them use it, even in, in the 40s, for example, that I'm referring to right now. But there are uh, some young Mexican Americans in the early 40s who uh, express their alienation from both American culture, the problems they had with the schools, but even they're uncomfortable with their Mexican culture. Maybe they feel it's too strict and so forth and so on, and they want to explore their own particular culture. These become the so-called pachucos of the 1940s and even beyond. Uh, they're a countercultural group of young people in the bigger urban areas of the Southwest, where most Mexicans in that period of time live. Now they live everywhere, but still heavily concentrated in Southwest from Texas, California. Um, in the big uh, LA, El Paso. In fact, some people think that the term Pachuco comes out of El Paso, which is my hometown. And so some people will say, we'll call El Paso El Chuco. But the Pachucos rediscovered the term Chicano mm -hmm. and they apply it to themselves as a counter uh, cultural term, a kind of defiance against both Anglo culture, and to some extent, even from their parental Mexican culture, they just they they are creating their own counterculture. Their appearance, some of them wearing the zoot suit, they they create their own language called Calo, C A L O, uh, and they have all kinds of words that seem to be nothing to do with Spanish or English. You know, it, it's their own language. It's a counter language. So the term Chicano has an evolution. So by the 1940s. It's used by U.S.-born Mexican-Americans, but of, of, the, the, of the Pachuco extreme of the Mexican-American population at that time. When I was growing up in the 1950s, uh, I, knew, I, heard the, I knew the term Chicano. I heard the term Chicano. In, in my Catholic high school, we had kids from the Southside Hardcore Radio of South El Paso. They called themselves Chicano, not with a political uh, connection, but with some ethnic pride. Mm -hmm. I'm Chicano, yo soy Chicano. So I, I knew it, I heard it. Of course, with the civil rights movement, as you mentioned, um, the so-called Chicano movement of the late 60s and early 70s, that generation, which is actually, which my generation, also then rediscovered the term Chicano. And hence the Chicano generation, the Chicano movement. And again, it is used as a term of defiance, but now the term is politicized. To be a Chicano during the period of the Chicano movement uh, is to be an activist of the movement. Chicano or Chicana. Uh, anyway, so uh, the, 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 the Mexican-Americans, Josh, have had a long history of civil rights struggle and that's why the conference uh, this uh, week will acknowledge that it's not, civil rights history doesn't begin or end with the Chicano movement because there's a longer history of Mexican-American civil rights struggles. And that's why we're, we opened it up to include people presenting uh, from this other, other periods. Mm -hmm. Let's take, for example, in, in the 1930s, 
many of the children of the immigrants who were coming in, in large numbers in the early 20th century come of age. They are U.S.-born citizens, uh, although not really treated as full U.S.-born citizens. So many of them began to uh, organize around the fact that as U.S.-born Mexican-Americans, they are not being given their full civil rights. They're not being acknowledged as full Americans. So by the 1930s, you have what I call the Mexican-American generation, which is a new leadership that arises. Uh, and, and they begin to organize in organizations, for example, like the League of United Latin American Citizens in Texas. Uh, it's interesting that they use the term Latin. And the reason for that, Josh, is because Texas being such a heavily racist state, the term Mexican already in the early 20th century with the immigrants coming in was heavily racialized. To be a Mexican was to be considered a member of a racially inferior population. And so LULAC members did not want to use the term Mexican because it would automatically bring a lot of uh, attention and possibly attacks on the group. So they used what they considered to be a more neutral term. Latin American, which is interesting because today we are using the term at least Latino. So maybe they were a little bit ahead of their times. But uh, LULAC is the first significant Mexican-American civil rights group, but many others will, will form during the 30s and, and, and during the 40s. Probably the most prominent group after World War II uh, is the American GI Forum composed of Mexican-American veterans who fought in World War II. But this early Mexican-American civil rights movement, Josh, will focus on what? They will focus on the historic, uh, on, the, on the issues of education. In the early 20th century, public schools throughout the Southwest, including here in Southern California, had segregated public schools for Mexican-Americans. They were called Mexican schools. They were inferior schools. They had lack of resources, uh, lack of grades, uh, in terms of how much you could go up the, in terms of grades. Uh, and they, one of the worst, I call it a crime, uh, things about the Mexican schools is that you had too many teachers, most of them Anglo teachers, white Anglo teachers, and I'm not saying all of them, but too many who had low expectations of their kids. They would walk into a classroom of Mexican-Americans and already feel that these kids could not be challenged uh, to achieve uh, higher standards of education. So they taught at the lowest common denominator. And they said, well, you know, the IQ tests that began to be administered in the early 20th century showed that these Mexican-Americans are pretty dumb. You know, they don't, they seem to be mentally inferior. These are racist I IQ tests. So um, the civil rights movement led by groups like LULAC went to struggle to, to desegregate those and in 1946, there was a very important case here in Southern California, uh, so-called Mendes case in Orange County, uh, which uh, uh, Mexican-Americans uh, through attorneys that they hired went to the federal courts to challenge the segregation of Mexican-American children. And uh, they succeeded in 1946 in, in the Mendes case. The federal court in Los Angeles ruled that there was no basis for the segregation of Mexican-Americans. 
California had legislation that did mandate segregation for African-Americans, Asian-Americans, and Native Americans, but not Mexican-Americans. So the federal court said that the uh, constitutional rights of the Mexican-American children were being violated, and also on the basis of the 14th Amendment. Some have suggested that the Mendes case lays the foundation for the more famous Brown case in 1954. But also discrimination in public facilities, Josh, uh, the, this early civil rights movement took on discriminate. There were, there were uh, restaurants in Texas that had signs like um, no dogs or Mexicans allowed. Um, you had theaters that forced Mexican-Americans throughout the Southwest to have to sit on the side aisles or in the balcony alongside with African-Americans. There were swimming pools in Southern California, for example, public swimming pools where Mexican-Americans and other minorities could only use the public swimming pool on one day. Mm. And the kicker here was this was a day that they cleaned the pool, dirty Mexican. So, and, you, and uh, even here close to Santa Barbara, uh, down in Carpinteria at the end of Linden Avenue, you have beautiful beachfront, beautiful beaches. Up until the 1950s, Mexican-Americans were not allowed to use that portion of the beach. They had to go further down or further up, but not in the main central where most of the Anglo-American, white Americans used to be. So there was, this, there was discrimination in Texas on the juries where people were, were being uh, uh, indicted for certain crimes, including murder and so forth, Mexican-Americans, and were judged by an all-white jury. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, uh, Mexican-Americans through LULAC and the GI form, they challenged that. And in 1954, a month or so before the Brown case, the Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren ruled that the, the, uh, the, the exclusion of Mexican-Americans in the jury system in Texas was unconstitutional based on the 14th Amendment. It, the court said any class of people who have suffered history of discrimination and therefore and then and not allowed to serve like on a jury system that 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 is that is discrimination and so these are the kinds of things that the early civil rights movement took on and very courageously and so there's a longer history now that what the chicano movement was less aware of this early history because the history hadn't been written and mm. i i I've written several books that deal with the Mexican-American generation. But, but at the time of the movement in the 60s and early 70s, the Chicano activists, they didn't know that that earlier generation had had a very strong civil rights movement. They thought they were the ones, the first ones. That, well, they weren't. But they did add to the history of the civil rights movement and, in fact, went beyond it because the Chicano movement, yes, was a civil rights movement to deal with still continuation of of, of segregation, uh, inferiority in the schools, lack of political representation, discrimination in housing, discrimination in health, discrimination in the media, uh, and so forth and so on. It, some, some improvements have been made by the earlier generation, but there's, there was still a lot of, a lot of issues and problems here. The, the Chicano movement took it up a notch, more militant. They, they were less... Uh, they were less, uh, they have less of a belief 
that American institutions like the courts and the political system could bring about significant social change. The new Chicano generation uh, despaired of that. So they said the only way that we're gonna bring about change is what they call direct action. What does that mean? Out in the streets, marches, demonstrations, boycotts, et cetera. And that, just, that seemed to, to, to waken up a lot of institutions. And so the movement was more militant in that, in that sense. And, uh, but it's still heavily focused on still basic civil rights issues like the schools and, and political representation and uh, lack of economic uh, opportunities. And they were able to force a lot of these changes, not completely, because we still have a lot of uh, problems and discrimination and racism that affect the Mexican Latino communities. But they did show that, that Chicanos uh, were going to, uh, not afraid to take on, to take on the, the system, that they wanted to be change makers. That, those, that Mexican American generation, that Chicano generation took on that stereotype that too many Americans have of the sleepy, passive Mexican. These people, you know, they don't want to engage in politics. They just, you know, the passive. Well, hardly uh, the early, the Mexican American generation took on the system. The Chicano generation took on the system in their own more militant way. Mm -hmm. Looks like the Brown Berets, all of that. <clears throat> now, Here's the problem, as I see it, Josh, and about the issue that we need to do in terms of rethinking American history. That period of the 60s, which actually spills into the 70s, it's a very rich history of protests, of civil rights movements by African-Americans, the anti-war movement, the feminist movement. It's a very rich history of, of struggling and people saying, no, we're not content with the way the system is, things have to change. But if you read the history of the 60s, also spills in the 70s, I said. What's missing? Among other things, the Chicano movement is missing. Historians who have written about this period, it's like they don't even know that there was a Chicano movement, but there was a Chicano movement. And it's important to integrate it into, our, into that history of that, of that period so that we have a, a better idea of what these social protest movements, these social movements were all about in that period of time, the Chicano movement was a very, very rich, uh, it's a very rich history of these kinds of struggles. Now, you mentioned the anti-war movement. Part of, of, of recognizing the Chicano movement is to recognize that no other minority group, including African-Americans, had such a strong and important anti-Vietnam War movement of protest. Why? Well, if you refer to it, who was doing the fighting? Who was being drafted in extraordinary numbers? People may or may not remember that in the 60s and 70s during the period of the US war in Vietnam, which was an, an, an unnecessary war. It was a war of choice by the United States. That was a civil war we were interfering with and we had no business there. Yet we lost 60,000 Americans and millions of Vietnamese on both sides. Uh, but who was doing the fighting? We had a draft. The only way that you could stay out of the draft was that you continued your education. So once you graduate from high school, for example, and you're 18 and you're eligible to be drafted, but if you went on to college, for example, as I did, you, 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 you had a, uh, you, a you, 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 you couldn't be drafted. Uh, and 
But many Chicanos, because of the whole legacy of the Mexican schools and the inferiority of those schools, uh, many of them did not go on to college or were encouraged to go to college. You had dropout rates in the East LA schools of up to 50% or more in the East LA high schools. And they were being pushed out because of the lack of sensitivity to their history, their culture, their language. Uh, and, and also the continuation of the sense that Chicanos, you know, were mentally inferior, they were, like I said earlier. That, and um, so many of them dropped out. As soon as they dropped out and they became 18, Uncle Sam wants you. And they didn't go into, Sal Castro says, uh, Amazingly, at Lincoln High School, where he taught during the time of the walkouts in 68, he said, there were more military recruiters in our schools than there were college recruiters. What does that tell you? Mm -hmm. And so a lot of kids were drafted because they weren't encouraged to go to college. They, along with African-Americans and poor white Americans, became, became the cannon fodder for the war in Vietnam. They were the ones that were out there, the GIs and so forth. And uh, many of them didn't come back at all. They came back wounded physically, uh, emotionally. So, and also, uh, so Chicanos were being disproportionately drafted. There was one study that was done by Professor Ralph Guzman at Cal State LA at that time that showed that in the late 60s, uh, the Chicano population represented about 10% of the population of the Southwest, Texas to California. And yet, in terms of the casualties in Vietnam, they represented 20% of the casualties. 10% of the population and representing 20%. That was a disproportion. Because, and again, it's because Chicanos were disproportionately being drafted into the, to the military. Also, um, what drove the Chicano anti-war movement was that the war was siphoning off a lot of resources and programs, like in education, like in in uh, job training and so forth, that you call this is a period of LBJ assuming the presidency after President Kennedy was tragically killed. And Johnson and LBJ has his great society program. A lot of programs are passed, bilingual education, uh, Head Start, uh, job retraining programs. All of them did have some uh, good in, in the barrios. It did help some people, but, but, but Johnson, who had always said we can have both guns and butter, we can have you know all these federal programs, but we can also pay for the war in Vietnam. Well, he couldn't have it both ways, and ultimately he chooses the war to, to pay for. So a lot of these federal uh, programs are cut back, and that doesn't have effect on communities like the Mexican American community. So for those two key reasons and others, Chicanos during the period of Chicano movement mounted as a very strong and significant Chicano anti-war movement against the war in Vietnam. It was climaxed on August 29, 1970, in East Los Angeles. Uh, 20 to 30,000 predominantly Chicanos marched against the war in Vietnam. It was the largest anti-war demonstration by any minority group, including African-Americans, in the United States. Uh, and, um, and so it showed the extent of the involvement of the of the of Chicanos in the key issues of the 60s, like the, the war in Vietnam. As you know, uh, that demonstration uh, was uh, was attacked by the LA County Sheriffs, backed up by the LAPD, uh, at the end of the rally yeah. uh, or the end of the march. Uh, 
police claimed that uh, there was some 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 of the marchers had stolen some liquor at a nearby liquor store, which was never proven. And consequently, an entire army of deputy sheriffs were already assembled. Clearly, they had an attempt to break up the, the moratorium, which was called the Chicano Anti-War Moratorium. Moratorium, as I tell my students, means stop the war or to stop. And so uh, they attacked the, the, the demonstrators and, and was called Laguna Park. It's now been renamed Ruben Salazar Park. And they drove them out. Uh, three people were killed. Many were uh, physically attacked. Tear gas was used. Chicanos fought back, burned police cars, and so forth. And the best-known victim of the breakup of the demonstration was Ruben Salazar, who I mentioned, who was uh, a, the most important Latino journalist in the United States at that time, writing for the Los Angeles Times. And Ruben had started with the Times in the early 60s, wrote about the Mexican-American community, covered Vietnam, was uh, uh, bureau chief of the LA Times in Mexico City for a couple of years. And then when the movement begins, we really did the, the impact in the country, like in 67, 68, Ruben is brought back to cover the Chicano movement. And at the time of the moratorium, he was writing some very important he became a columnist, writing very important columns for the LA Times, but also he had become the news director of KMEX, at that time the only Spanish language television station. So he was there covering the moratorium. And uh, later when the police attacked, the sheriff's attack, he and his crew retired down Whittier Boulevard, which was the main artery of the demonstration, to a uh, bar called the Silver Dollar Cafe. Mm -hmm. uh, within a few minutes, County Sheriff's Police uh, came, drove up to the cafe, to the bar, and one county sheriff shot two or three tear gas projectors, projectiles into, into the bar with an open door, just a little curtain there. One of those uh, tear gas projectors struck Ruben Salazar in the head, instantly killing him. Mm -hmm. so he becomes a victim of that day. And... Um, and he becomes an almost instant martyr of the, the Chicano movement. Although first and foremost, he was a first-rate journalist. And uh, so um, the Chicano movement is very much a part of the history of that period of time. It needs to be recognized as such and needs to be integrated. I mean, the whole point of all of this kind of like the history that I've written and so forth, showing Chicanos involved in civil rights struggles, showing like, that they've had leaders just take on the system <clears throat> when the system has been unjust is to hopefully teach my students, hopefully it'll trickle down to the K to 12, and that Chicanos will know that they have been a part of American history. They have contributed to this history economically, as I talked about the contributions of the Mexican American workers, but they've also forged struggles like civil rights struggles that make this a better country. And um, Sal Castro often bemoaned the fact that nothing in the schools at the time that he was teaching spoke to the Chicanos. Nothing of the history taught had anything to do with Mexican-Americans. Um, he said, how come, you know, we have George Washington, Lincoln's picture. How about the picture of Benito Juarez or later Cesar Chavez? Something that tells the Chicanos that this is also their school that, and that they're part of this country. Mm -hmm. That's why his mantra was, Chicanos are American history. 
I guess my mantra is slightly revised to say Chicano history is American history, not something separate. Wow, I don't know what to say to that. That was amazing uh, to hear that that history and uh, you to tell it so specifically. Usually, Dr. Garcia, I do all the work on these podcasts, <laughs> but um, you know, I don't even want to talk or interrupt because uh, you you know you're just uh, so rich with all. Your- well, you know that, Josh. You know, uh, I mean that. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it shows my own passion for Chicano history. But it's not a passion that is like just emotions or rhetoric. It's passion that's based on knowing what happened, the history, how Chicanos have been treated, how, how they fought back to have to be recognized as full Americans. I failed to mention that as part of that history of Chicanos being American history, as Sal Castro often, often said, some of Sal Castro's part of my mentorship, uh, he said, you know, Chicanos, Latinos have fought in every war of the United States. He said, how many people know that? American Revolution, Spain supported the American colonists. So so people of Spanish, in this case, background, were part of the American Revolution. That's why he's saying the descendants of those Spaniards, mixed people, Chicanos, can be said to be part of the American Revolution. That how many people know that Chicano Mexican Americans were involved were in the Civil War? Uh, Mexican Americans in Texas, for example, fought on the Confederate side. Mexican Americans in New Mexico, in California, fought on the Union side. How many people know that? Spanish American War. Do people know that uh, Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders were Hispanos, Mexican Americans from New Mexico, and then and then many thousand were in World War One including some of the immigrants who either joined or were drafted, but Mexican-Americans were uh, in World War I and they fought very bravely and many of them were decorated. And then in World War II, Josh, it's estimated that half a million people of either Mexican or Puerto Rican background, but predominantly of Mexican-American background were in World War II. The 1940 census indicates that only about three, Three million Mexican Americans in the United States, and so you have half a million uh, in World War II. How many people know that? Mm-hmm. They disproportionately they fought in Europe, in North Africa, in the Pacific, in the Philippines. Uh, many were killed, many were wounded physically, emotionally, uh, as I said earlier, and disproportionately they won more Congressional Medal of Honors, highest honor for valor in battle than any other American group. 13 Mexican-Americans won the Congressional Medal. Mm. Um, and, um, and so as Sal and, uh, and I would say, what more do people have to know that, that Chicanos are part of American history? I mean, to, to, to show that you, to prove that you're American, the ultimate is that you put your life on the line for your country. And, and they were not fighting for Mexico, they were fighting for the United States. And they were in Korea, they were in Vietnam, as we mentioned, they've been in the Gulf War, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, and yet not fully acknowledged. You know, the, the World War II veterans uh, came to be referred to as the greatest generation. Tom Brokaw spoke on that. And yet, you read Tom Brokaw's book on the greatest generation, he doesn't have a, doesn't have a single Latino, mm-hmm. based on the interviews that he did. And his stories that not a single Latino. Did the, Tom Brokaw from Los Angeles, not know that Chicanos 
he, he in fact, he covered the, the anti-war moratorium. Uh, and then to add insult to injury, a few years later, Ken Burns, a great American documentarian, does his, his uh, docu documentary on World War II. Again, no Latinos. So they've been written off as part of the greatest generation, yet they are part of the greatest generation. And when challenged by Mexican-American civil rights group, Ken Burns said, well, you know, this was not about ethnic groups, my document. Well, wait a minute, Ken. You have your requisite uh, uh, European ethnic American. You have your requisite African American. What do you mean that ethnicity wasn't part of your document? Well, he said, yeah, but, uh, you know, I, I was basically uh, showing uh, how the how the veterans from, from four cities in the United States, how they were impacted by World War II. Well, what was one of those cities in the West, Ken? Sacramento, Sac Sacramento. Oh, you couldn't find a single Mexican-American veteran veterano in Sacramento. The, the, the name of the city even calls out the fact of Mexicans in the United States. So um, that's another story I tell my students, by the way, uh, you know, how how people just don't realize who live in the West and so forth, how the names of their cities and towns and rivers and so forth all speak to the existence of a Mexican Latino presence and history and where they live. I said, you know, we've so anglicized some of these names of cities, uh, Los Angeles and Los Angeles, Santa Barbara and, and Santa Barbara, you know, but these names I say to my students, those names didn't come with a Mayflower. Those names are the result of an earlier Spanish-Mexican presence in the very areas where we live. Doesn't that tell you something? Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm very passionate about, you know, changing how we view American history and integrating the history of groups like Chicanos and Latinos who unfortunately have been excluded. I mean, I really, I mean, I've never been in the military, but uh, and I could tell you of my own Vietnam War story, but, but, but I mean, come on, if, if nothing else, integrate these veterans into things like the greatest generation. They fought for this country. They laid their lives down for this country. Then they came back and were still treated as inferior Mexicans. There was one story of one Congressional Medal of Honor winner in South Texas who came back and and even with his uniform, was not allowed entry into a restaurant in, in South Texas. Can you believe that? Uh, so there's, we've got a lot of things to change. For nothing, for no reason that our kids in the schools, many of them who are now Chicanos and Mexican-Americans, they need to know very much uh, to, to, that they're part of this, this country. South Castro, again, would say, if, if the kids don't, aren't, the kids aren't, don't know about their history, uh, feel that their culture has been treated inferiorly, they're going to see themselves in an inferior way. And, and it's a recipe for uh, lack of, of faith. It's a recipe for failure. It's, 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 it's psychology 101, so I would say that to be successful, you have to feel good about yourself. You have to feel good about yourself. These kids are not made, have historically not been made to feel good about themselves in the school. That needs to change. Yeah. They need to feel good about themselves. But I still get kids, you know, Josh, that come to my classes, they don't even know who Cesar Chavez was. <laughs> they yeah. don't. And uh, I'll tell you a little anecdote on that. So when Cesar Chavez died in 1993, 
great leader of the farm workers, major American figure, probably the best known Latino historical figure in the United States and in the world, I guess. So uh, Caesar died in 1993. And one of my colleagues in his class told the class, uh, this is very tragic because we just learned that Caesar Chavez has passed and it's a very tragic uh, day for that. And one of the students said, oh yeah, it's really, it's really tragic. He was such a good boxer. Oh. He meant Julio Cesar, Julio. <laughs> who was a good boxer, yeah. but not the Cesar Chavez, Cesar Chavez. So this is, you know, we have produced so much I, history and I've, I've, I've contributed to that, if I may say so, that's what's being acknowledged on the second day of the conference and all the books that I've done and so forth and so on that cover the whole span of, I cover 19th century, the early Mexican immigrants, I cover the Mexican-American generation, I cover the Chicano generation. I even wrote a book a few years later called The Latino Generation about, or my students, uh, the millennials, I, I called them the Latino generation, and I interviewed a number of them, published it in a book. But, um, but uh, they, don't, they, don't, they don't know, know much of this history, the students, we have produced so much knowledge, Josh, than when I first started Chicano history teaching in 1969. And now, 50-some-odd years later, we have so much that has been produced. However, it has not, unfortunately, steeped down to the K-12. to yeah. That's why this kid thought that Cesar Chavez was the boxer, not the great farm work, civil rights and farm worker leader. Yeah. I don't understand that, Josh, because we now have more Chicano Latino teachers in our public schools, certainly California. We have those who are principals, vice principals, counselors, even people who serve on school boards now. Why isn't the curriculum significantly changed so that these kids are aware of the significant historical contributions of people who look like themselves? Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's a shame. Uh, and it's because, again, the refer to South Castro, he said, it does us no good to have this kind of ethnic transformations in our schools, for example, in terms of the teachers being more Mexican-Americans, Latinos. So if they're not going to be change makers, in other words, if they're not going to take on the system and say, hey, no, we've got to change that curriculum, even though we have to take on my own principal or the school, things have to change here, just like Sal did, trying to get change in 68, teaching his kids. Uh, they got to be change makers. And the same thing goes with our politicians. They can't just can't go to Sacramento, Washington, and uh, just kind of uh, accept the status quo or just become part of, you know, regular type of politicians. And you know some of the stories of Mexican-American, Latino politicians recently being involved in corruption or various other kinds of things, you know, and... Uh, that's that's unacceptable. They've got to be change makers and, and change the system. And uh, that's what I think the population wants. That's what our kids deserve. Yeah, you know, I appreciate all that. So much of what you said is exactly right on. And the, the main point is, too, and we need to wrap up because uh, I know we could talk all day and I could learn from you all day with your knowledge. Uh, but this idea that Latinos need to see themselves um, in these positions is so important. And that theme of 
Chicano history and Mexican American and Latino history being ingrained into American history is so important because it's not about forcing education on somebody. What it is is about letting people know that they are just as important in the story of this country than anyone else. But I can tell you that even to this day, many Mexican-American and Hispanic and Latinx community members feel like the other still to this day. And when you feel like the other, you never quite feel like you belong. And so it's so important that we see people like you and others in these positions. You know, I go to Chaucer's a lot with my kids and I always uh, internally, you know, in my head, just remark at like, there's one book, it's the Cesar Chavez, you know, when you look at like, young, you know, our heroes and it's Cesar Chavez. And then it's, uh, there's a Jennifer Lopez one and uh, it goes to entertainment really quick. And so I was just sort of thinking that someday I'd love to see, you know, more of the people you write about yeah, and, and, and more than just a, uh, you know, the other cliche, the, you know, that th there's actually many that are firmly ingrained in our, in our history. The last thing before we wrap up, Dr. Garcia is, can you just talk for a few minutes on you and you growing up? I mean, cause you are uh, uh, rare you are unique. You you did something that not a lot of people do, and you're one of the the founders of the the Chicano uh, Studies uh, program at UCSB. And so, how did you do it? Did you see uh, your professors, your teachers, when you were going through school? Can you just talk a little bit about your story of and your upbringing and how you got to where you're at? Yeah, sure, uh, Josh. And uh, but I do want to say I'm I'm not I'm not alone. I mean, uh, I mean I. I'm part of a, an initial cohort of professionally trained Chicano historians coming out of the Chicano movement into the 70s, where we began to teach at various universities and began to really systematically produce uh, the knowledge of Chicano history. So, and many, many other younger historians and, and, and new generations uh, come uh, followed in our path. So, I do want to say that. But um, I grew up in El Paso, Texas, along the border. Uh, my mother, uh, family, as I mentioned earlier, came out of the Mexican Revolution in 1910. Uh, they were, they fled the revolution, settled in El Paso, among many of the other political exiles, along with economic exiles, those who were coming to work in the United States because they, they couldn't find enough uh, to sustain them in Mexico. So you had both economic and political exiles in the early 20th century. So my father, my parents come after the 1910 revolution, and uh, on my mother's side. Uh, so my mother was born in El Paso. So she was a U.S.-born Mexican-American. She went to American schools uh, and uh, went through high school, which was a little bit unusual for a lot of Mexican-Americans even in her time uh, in the 1930s. My father, on the other side. His family, to some degree, benefited from the revolution. And his father was a fairly well-to-do dairy farmer in Durango, Mexico, in the capital city of Durango, Durango, Durango. So my, my father uh, came from a fairly you know, upper-middle-class family. And he met my mother uh, at a dance in Ciudad Juarez because he was studying at an agricultural college there in Ciudad Juarez. They met, and then they... Uh, 
went back to Durango where my dad would you know, work on the farm, on the dairy farm. But my mother was never comfortable there. She felt that his family looked down on her as a U.S. born Mexican American. Fortunately, so even though my mother was bilingual, very effectively bilingual and bicultural. So at one point, she told my dad that, and she now had three kids, including me, although we were all born in El Paso, but then came back to Durango. That she was uncomfortable there with her family, and she was going to return to El Paso with the three kids. If he came, fine. If he didn't come, well, it's up his choice. He talked to his father. His father said, no, you tell your woman that she belongs here. My dad couldn't do that. He was too gentle a person that I really appreciated much later in life. So he came back. He had to struggle. And he had a used, had a used furniture store for a number of years. But he provided. We, we never bought a, had a house. Uh, we always rented and moved around in different locations in El Paso. And, uh, but my mother was very insistent that we go to Catholic schools. Not because she was exceptionally Catholic, but because she also believed that the Catholic schools were better than the public schools. And I think at that time, I think she was right. So we went to elementary school, St. Patrick's, and <clears throat> me and my later four brothers all went to Cathedral High School, which was Christian Brothers and my own. One and only sister, a uh, younger uh, member of the siblings, went on to the same Catholic schools and went to the girls' high school, Loretto Academy. But my mother was very heavy on uh, education as well and on developing leadership qualities in us. And uh, so she encouraged us to play sports, football, basketball. And I, I, was, I was a good player. My older brothers were very good players. And um, that, I think, helped to develop our leadership skills through our coaches. And uh, our, our Catholic high school was uh, college prep. So there was a sense that we would go into college. Not that everyone did, but because my one of my older brothers did go on to college, it kind of created a pathway for me. And so I stayed and went, as he did, to our local college, which was at that time called Texas Western College. Then later in 1966, the year I graduated, was uh, renamed the University of Texas at El Paso. I had uh, thought that I might become a US diplomat because the mayor of our city, Raymond Teas, who was also a graduate of Cathedral High School, he, he was named in 1961 by President Kennedy as the ambassador of Costa Rica. He was the first ambassador of, of Mexican-American extraction to be named a U.S. ambassador. And that impressed me. And I thought, well, maybe I'd like to follow in his footpath. So I first majored in poli-sci, but I liked history so much more <laughs> that I ultimately majored in history, minored in political science. And uh, <clears throat> and then I, in my one of my senior classes, as I was uh, history classes, and I taking notes from the professor, and I'm hearing him lecture, and I said to myself, you know, I think I can do that. Maybe I could become a college professor. So I applied for the MA program there, same school UTEP, got accepted, and uh, and, and got my MA. However, you know. When I, I was one of the better students and finishing my MA, but unfortunately, none of my single Anglo professors ever said to me, you know, you are one of our better students. Have you ever considered going on to get a PhD? You would maybe want to think about becoming a college professor. Not a single one of them ever encouraged me uh, to do so. Uh, a year after I got my MA, I did interview um, 
for a position as a lecturer in U.S. history at San Jose State, and I got accepted. But Josh, I mean, so what? What? What I'm really going to say is that yes, I worked hard. Mother's encouragement, developing a sense of leadership, I had a sense of becoming a college professor. I had already a passion for history, so I was ready. But the opportunity wasn't there. What created the opportunity? The Chicano movement created the opportunity. What was happening, for example, in California? I mean, I got my MA in '68. Movement was hot and heavy already in California. They were the students and others were demanding Chicano studies programs. They were demanding the hiring of Chicano professors and so forth. That gave me my opening. That gave me the opportunity. I was hired because of the movement. And I was not hired in Chicago City, but I was hired in U.S. in the history department. I taught, but they also then asked me that summer, could you teach a course in Chicago City? I didn't had never taught, I never had a course in Chicago City. I wasn't sure what actually constituted Chicago. City. But I worked that summer and put together a course, and uh, and that then also then expanded my passion for history to now include Chicano history because I felt this is really my story. This is my family story. I have a I have a passion for it, and I want to continue to pursue it. So I taught my first courses in Chicano history. And then I went and got my PhD at UC San Diego under a Mexican-American professor by the name of Ramon Eduardo Ruiz. He gave me another big break. And so I finished my PhD, and I did, well, I did my dissertation in Chicano history. I, I, I went back, in a sense, to trace my family background in El Paso, and I studied the early history of Mexican immigration to El Paso in the early 19th, in late 19th to the early 20th century, 1880-1920. And that really immersed me in research in Chicano history. And, uh, from, and that became my first book, published a few years later in 1981, called Desert Immigrants, Mexicans of El Paso, 1880-1920. And from there on, I just continued. I said, well, you know, I, I want to find out not just about what happened with these early immigrants, but then what happens to the children of the immigrants? Like my mother, what is her history? So then I moved on to study what I then later called the Mexican-American generation. And then after doing some studies like that, about uh, the Corona and others, I said, well, what about my generation, the Chicano generation? I want to study but more about my generation, like the Chicano movement. I'll so I began to study and research and publish in the area of the Chicano movement. So I've gone up like that, and, but all of it with a sense that um, it was the movement. I mean, yes, I worked hard and I had my talents, but sometimes we all need breaks. My break was the movement. We hated that opportunity that forced, in this case, institutions of higher education to diversify and to recognize that they owed an obligation to part of the citizens of their community, in this case, Mexican-American citizens, to have access to an, to an institution of higher education that they were paying taxes for. And so they finally were, they did not do this willingly. They did not all of a sudden think, oh, gee, you know, uh, we need to have more Chicanos here. We need to have Chicanos. No, they were pressured in by the direct action of the Chicano movement. And that's what I tell my students. How does change happen? It's when people come together and say, these, these, these things that are not working, that are not good for, for communities, have to be changed and people have to come to. It's through struggle, through struggles, peaceful struggles, civil rights, political uh, movements, and so forth. 
that's how change is brought about. And that, again, was the, my big break and they allowed me to become a professionally trained uh, prof uh, professor and, and historian. And uh, I still look back and I, I owe a debt to the movement. And maybe that's what continues to, 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 to create uh, that further passion that there's still one more study to be done. And, and if I don't do it, maybe not, no one else will. So I'm always moving, moving ahead. And even in my retirement, Josh, I'm working on a couple of projects. And uh, so that's not going to finish. I won't teach as much, although occasionally I may be asked to teach, which I love teaching as part of my passion. Because part of a passion is to, to transfer not only my passion, but my knowledge what we discussed about to my students who know very little. And I just to see them light up as well and recognize that they've never heard some of these things before. It's never been taught to them before. I'd love to, to, to see that happen. So I will miss not teaching as much, but my research will go on. And when I get an opportunity to teach, I will do so. Wow. Well, Dr. Garcia, you truly are a, a change maker you know you are what you want from others you are that in academia and your work will live on and the great thing about your books and your history is that every generation coming forward is going to be able to benefit from that research and that work and you really special because if you didn't do that it wouldn't have been done I mean, there are others that you had mentioned, obviously, in your that came out of that Chicano uh, civil rights movement. But um, if you removed you from that, no one else would have done the work that you have done. And I think that's the mark of somebody who's a real um, uh, historic figure and somebody who's a real uh, contributor to our society. Because if 100 people are doing something and you're also doing it, that's one thing, but if you're one of one doing something, that is what is remarkable about your contributions. And well, well you're you're way too kind, Josh. But thank <laughs> you so much. And so, so, so with that, let's wrap up and just you know, again, the 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 sixth annual biannual uh, Sal Castro Memorial Conference, which is coming up, uh, and also a day honoring you and your work and your history is really, this is February 17th and 18th at UCSB, free, by the way, which is amazing, free and open to the public. It's at, in, in our uh, Interdisciplinary Humanities Center, which is in the Humanities and Social Science building on campus. Yeah. So uh, thank you for, for, for doing that. And I look forward to uh, learning more on those days. And uh, thank you for taking time today to share your story, a little bit of your story, and I can just imagine the students who had the opportunity to take you, how wonderful those classes must have been. So uh, thanks a lot, Dr. Mario Garcia. Have a great day. Thank you, Josh, very much. Thank you so much. Sure.